Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of Pull Up a Chair, a series dedicated to holding space for conversations about themes and topics related to food and people. My name is Chris Rodriguez, and today we will be discussing food, labor, and climate change with historian and professor Enrique Ochoa. During today's conversation, we will discuss the global climate impacts of food policies and how they affect the local communities and cultures that cultivate identity crops like maize. Most importantly, we'll discuss how we can address climate change and the threats facing our global food supply chains. We will do our best to lay out a broad scope, zooming in and out on these themes, while allowing time for you, our audience, to engage with us towards the latter part of our conversation. Before I continue with our introductions, I would like to express my sincerest gratitude for Ruby and uh, all of the team in creating this wonderful platform. Thank you so much. And now I'd like to share a little bit about me and how I came to know our guest today. I grew up in Los Angeles and Baja California with roots in the Iberian Peninsula and across central Mexico. I'm a descendant of classically trained chefs and I'm a 20 year veteran of the modern French culinary brigades. I hold a Bachelor of Arts in Gender, Ethnic and Multicultural Studies and a Bachelor of Science in Hospitality Management from Cal Poly Pomona with some graduate training in Latin American Studies at Cal State LA. Uh, during my undergraduate time, I was um, actively involved in student movements demanding healthier eating options for our campus community and also supporting immigrant rights coalitions and urban farming movements like the South Central Farmers. It was during this time that I enrolled in a class entitled Food, Power and Culture taught by Enrique Ochoa. And these are the themes that bring us to our discussion today. So now I'd like to introduce Enrique who prefers not to go by his doctoral or professor titles. Uh, Enrique is a professor of Latin American studies and history at Cal State LA. Enrique grew up on the San Gabriel Valley and was raised by his Sicilian American mother and Nicaraguan father, both of whom were middle school teachers. Enrique received their PhD at UCLA in history and has been teaching at Cal State LA since 1995. In 2013 and 2014, Enrique was named the president's distinguished professor from 2006 to 2008, they held the Walter and Michi Wagelin Endowed Chair of Multicultural Studies at Cal Poly Pomona. The author and editor of multiple articles and several books, Enrique's research focuses on Mexican and Central American history, food studies, Latinx studies, immigration, and teaching history and intersectional ethnic studies in K through 16 classrooms and communities. Enrique, welcome to Pull Up a Chair. We are so pleased to have you with us today. Thank you, Chris. It's really great to be here with you. Great to be with Ruby uh, and to see all the exciting work you're doing and looking forward to a, a really exciting conversation. Wonderful, yes. I'm very excited too. Um, and so I think we should just jump right into uh, some of the questions that I've set up for today. And first, uh, if you could just begin by sharing a little bit about yourself and what shapes your approach to the work you do as a historian and educator. Great. Yes, thanks. And I think, you know, your introduction, um, our relationship as well, the way you described it and just being here captures a lot about what motivates me and what shaped my approach to teaching, research and community work. Um, as you talked about, right, our, our initial encounters in 2006, 2007, 2008, um, during the period of, of a lot of community activism around immigrant rights, around food justice, right? There was a big movement here about the South Central Farmers movement. Um, all, those, all those things in our interactions really helped to kind of motivate me. That is, I draw from, right, the strengths of students, the ideas, the communities, the cultures, the, the knowledges that you all bring. Uh, and so, 
So my interest in this course that we, that we were teaching at that time, Food, Power, and Culture, um, where, was to teach about what was going on in Latin America, what was going on in the U.S., in working class communities around uh, issues of globalization and NAFTA and the way in which communities really were resisting and fighting back and trying to gain control over the food system. And so again, interaction with students, with community members, with activists like yourself, like your crew at the time, right? Uh, allowed me and pushed me to be able to see um, other ways of thinking about things. Again, your work at, right around uh, in, in, in the kitchen, uh, in food justice um, uh, spaces, right, helped to push the way I see things and get me out of the academic mold and connect it to the community and develop it. So I'm really motivated by, again, my engagement with the community, with students and the, and the diverse knowledges. I I come from a, a, a union family, a social justice oriented family. You had mentioned um, my parents as middle school teachers, my mother, Francesco Choa, right, as a Sicilian American whose, whose parents were politically active when they migrated um, from Sicily into New York. And my grandfather was active in the, uh, in the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. And so social justice, right, was very important. Um, um, worker control, maintaining our communities ourselves, um, we're very much there and contradictions aside, of which there's always some, right? There was always kind of a strong push even, right? Uh, from my, 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 uh, my father's family uh, that migrated to Nicara from Nicaragua here, right? To stand up for what's right, to begin to see things in a more holistic way, not just in our divided way that we tend to see, well, this is me in school, this is me at home, this is, no, but how do we see things holistically? right, that we're whole people connected to whole communities, connected to a whole world, um, right, that is uh, interacting with, right, the entire planet. So in this kind of more holistic kind of approaches. And for me, that is very important, right, Th that connection of that holistic, because I, th I think even going through school, um, right, I felt, well, I think I was taught to be disconnected. I think one thing we do in right in U.S. society, in Western uh, in Western capitalist patriarchal society, is divide us, uh, get us to divide from each other, but also from ourselves and connect and see. Well, no, this is, again, right, chop ourselves up into into little pieces, so to speak, and not see things holistically. And so, as I as I began to study and began to focus, I I was drawn to movements um, that were trying to connect and that are trying to make things whole again, uh, to challenge the way in which colonialism beginning in 1492, capitalism, patriarchy, racism, right, that comes along with it, how those things were really meant to, to erase the communities that were here, erase indigenous people through genocide, enslave Africans and bring them Oh, and bring them over into the U.S. right in in a way that tried to deny, deny their humanity and their ways of knowledge, and instead to try to impose uh, a, a way of life and a way of thinking. And so communities, right, in resistance have long been trying to uh, challenge that and have been somewhat successful in maintaining and resisting uh, and the like. And so for me, that kind of motivates me, right, to to, to recapture that, to see what communities are doing, how they're drawing upon uh, these ways of doing things when all too often, right, we work even in the educational system in parts of U.S. society to erase those struggles, erase those experiences. And so I've, I've been drawn to revolutionary movements seeking food and labor uh, justice that, that are challenging those, um, the Zapatistas in Mexico, the revolutionary movements in Latin America, the landless movement trying to take land back and and um, bring bring the people and the land and the community back as a whole, uh, and other kind of community-based movements that are trying to to do that. So those are some of the things, right, that have motivated me and that continue uh, to motivate me both in my teaching and my research. Wonderful, yes, and and that's you know a big part of how we pulled the themes together for um, for today's discussion. Um, you know, is um, you know beginning to look at um, food and education 
Um, Ruby is an online, you know, uh, world-renowned online um, culinary school. We we have a global reach um, with many students across the across the globe, and so uh, this platform, you know, is being able to bring in these different discussions is is critical. Um, so that we can begin to reconnect um, and and really know how food is tied into these different themes that you touched on. Um, mm -hmm. And so kind of um, to now look at more of like a historical uh, angle at um, uh, you know one of the one of the topics that we wanted to center for today, um, looking at identity crops, um, mm -hmm. looking at um, climate change, and how um, our food chains, our supply chains have evolved over time from mm -hmm. agricultural, well, we could say even um, beginning with um, hunting and gathering um, and then early cultivation and agricultural, agricultural, agricultural uh, societies into what we are experiencing now. Um, with you know just this global um, instant access to food, um, so looking at maize as an identity crop, which um, we I think it would be great to to define um, what identity crops are. If you could mm -hmm. touch on that, um, and also um, let's let's discuss a little bit a little bit about the historical significance of maize um, and where does it originate. And if you could speak on that a little bit sure. um, as we move into this discussion, we will zoom in on maize and bring it, you know, zoom back out into the, the broader context. Great. No, and that's a great question, right? And again, food, as you mentioned, right, aside from, right, nourishing our bodies and our souls and our spirit, right, also is, is a window into these processes, both the personal, the intimate, uh, Right. Again, allow us to kind of think about gender and community and the political and land and the environment. And it opens up so much. And that is kind of this holistic approach is so central, again, given the way we tend to view things in our society at this point. And so when you raise the question, yes, about kind of identity crops and maize, right, maize, um, what we refer to right in, in English as maize. Um, which emerges in this, I mean, of course, the name is, uh, is, a, is a, a name that kind of comes from indigenous languages, right, in the Caribbean, uh, and then gets adopted by the Spanish, but, but maize emerges in, right, Mesoamerica, Central America, Mexico, um, 12, 13,000 years ago, again, right, the, the, Archaeologists are still trying to date it, but been a, around for uh, a long time and have and has carried civilizations. So by identity crops, right, these then become not just commodities, right? Maize is not just a, a food or a product as we tend to see it in our modern capitalist society. Uh, instead, right, it is about a way of life. It's about a, 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 a people very connected to it. I love this great quote. Um, by uh, by Marco Sandoval, who's a Triki elder, an indigenous elder from Oaxaca, and he's former um, director of the Museo Nacional de Culturas y Populares y Indígenas in Mexico. And he says, you know, el maíz es una manera de ser y de vivir, right? Maize is a way of being and living. It relates us to, at the same time, to our mother earth, to the gods, and to everything around, right? To the living and to the dead. That is, right, for millennia, people have seen food and what they eat as part of who they were, who they are, um, as a way of being, as a way of life, and as a connection to the world all around, right, around them. Uh, it was about a relationship to the land, to the gods, to the people, going back there, to the living, to the dead, as he says, but also to um, right, other sentient beings, um, uh, animal life, uh, the, the live soil, the plants around, that that is um, kind of how people have, have oftentimes, right, seen themselves. Uh, and this complex and multi-layered understanding of food, right, as part of who people are and the world around it, and not a separate thing, right, that emerges from early on. Um, and then 
begins to be under assault, at least in the Western Hemisphere, in 1492, right, when Columbus begins the, 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 the colonization process and the conquest process, um, where Western knowledge systems, then driven by colonialism and patriarchy and capitalism, work to make the Americas and everything else legible to it so that they can understand it and control it and transform it. Whereas, yeah, as you have there, the Popol Vuh, the Mayan Book of Life, the Book of Life of the Quiche Maya. Uh, and we can see this in many, many different oral stories and oral uh, origin stories throughout the Americas and throughout uh, Central Mexico, right? In the Mayan uh, Book of Life, people said, again, it's written that, yes, the gods first tried to make people um, using wood. Uh, they didn't like the way they came out. They tried then another substance, and ultimately then they took maize dough, uh, maize, and the dough made it from it, right? Nixtamal, that maize dough, and then shaped it into people. Uh, and at the same time, used different varieties of maize, different colors of maize to create humans. You know, we have many of these stories as well, origin stories from the Mexica uh, and Mexica oral lore, right? The so-called Aztec oral lore that talks about the god Quetzalcoatl transforming himself into an ant, going up into the mountains, finding a grain of corn, a grain of maize, bringing it back to the Valley of Mexico uh, at the time in which humans are, are, are beginning to populate the earth, and then forging the basis of society based on that maize, right? Again, there are numerous other origin stories so that people are seen as the people of maize, gente de maize, that, right, there's no direct disconnection between food and ourselves, between food, ourselves, and the land and the plants. So again, there is this deep connection uh, in that discussion, this is an identity crop, right? And again, I, one can see this um, with rice in, in many Asian communities, right? In China and, and Japan, uh, other communities in other areas develop these same kind of identity crops where it's not just a commodity or what people eat, but it is connected to a whole worldview, a cosmovision. And and we, right, and we see that, and that makes this very unique. Then we have to think about tortillas and tamales and, and other, um, other foods that, that emerge from maize, not just as a commodity. Yes, it may be bought and sold. Yes, it may be in restaurants, but there's a much deeper history there, a much deeper way of life, way of being uh, that needs to be taken into consideration and, and should be thought about in that process. So this is kind of what we mean by right identity crops, and 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 maize uh, is is a great example of this. Um, that for centuries, right, people have seen themselves identified with it, beginning with the colonization and conquest in 1492. Then Europeans begin right to to challenge that, and and maize, as as we can see from the slide there, uh, it was always kind of um, from its inception and from its initial planting was always planted with other crops, intercropped, right? With beans and maize and squash as a way of, in both cases, all growing it together that protected each other. They together, right? The beans as well provided nitrogen to the soil. And so it was self-fertilizing. It protected it from, um, from weevils and other animals that might feed off it. Uh, this kind of intercropping of these three sisters, maize, frijol, uh, and calabaza, uh, with, other, with other supplemental foods, created a very strong um, plant-based diet, right, that persisted, that, that, that existed and persisted um, for thousands of years throughout the Americas. When meat was added, it was relatively small amount at certain times. Uh, and since there were no, there were very few large hooved animals um, in the Americas, right? What we now know as cows and 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 pigs, right? Those didn't exist. Instead, they drew from the 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 great diversity of plant life that was there. And so, maize 
um, again, when we reduce it just to corn in this one I th item, right, as this one item, as we see grown in the U.S. and in the stores in the U.S., um, we miss that great diversity, the great biodiversity that has existed throughout the Americas for all these years. And with maize, you see it, right, that there are literally hundreds, actually, at different times, thousands of different varieties uh, of, of maize um, in different shapes, in different sizes, in different colors to be used based on different soils, um, different climates. To, some maize to be used, right, to, to make pozole. Some maize better to be used to make um, masa for tortillas. Other maize is used for, um, for what, atol, for the more corn-based drinks, um, for tamales from a whole variety of different ones, for popcorn, right? All this requires different kinds of maize. And those knowledges were created over the course, right, of thousands of years. Um, they were created, those are technologies. Yes, that scientific kind of thought and technology that were developed and, and, and in a scientific way, right? Trial and error. And that's all this knowledge. Sorry, I was just going to jump in and, and add that there was a certain, um, like the original sort of genetic modification um, that went into creating maize. It was it's originally a grass um, before right. it was actually you know um, you know a grain or and so that required like early um, genetic modification. We could say we could argue um, not like the genetic modification that we see today, which is um, stripping the grain from its nutrients and from this collective way of growing this uh you know the milpa that we that we saw earlier with the three sisters um and so how did we go from the milpa to this global uh commodification and um and the way it it's cultivated in the u.s um i think it's uh, about over 40 percent of U.S. corn is, is um, grown not for consumption. Um, can we maybe touch a little bit on, you know, the policies? Uh, yep. You know, global food policies, or or kind mm -hmm. of like you know, let's let's zoom out a little bit into these um, policies that have allowed for this huge shift right. Um, right. in in how corn is grown. And um, right. and what for? What what is what is the the reasoning for um, the this current system that we have with our food production? Great, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a great um, point. And before we do that, Chris, maybe we could, if you don't mind, if we can talk a little bit about the importance of that of the early maize and those knowledges and technologies that were there. Do you mind if we do Absolutely. that a little bit? Because yeah, I think I think the one we really need to center, right, and the importance there, in addition to the varieties and the cultivation practices that went on uh, and that continue to get on, and those knowledges and seed saving still happens today, and migrants are bringing those seeds with them to different parts of the U.S., to different other areas, right, and they're maintaining those knowledges that are in those seeds. But also when we talk about tortillas, right, as we as we will. Um, right, uh, tortillas as the basis of it, and the whole kind of maizdo, maizdo, uh, maizdo, nixtamal. Right, there's so much rich, deep, gendered histories and knowledges behind it. Right, these are the whole process of making, um, taking the corn, right, taking the maize from the uh, as a grain, and then make it in, into dough in ways that have sustained communities for years, right, is, an, is a scientific technological process developed by indigenous women. Over the course of thousands of years, they developed nixtamalization to be able to take the corn to add calcium hydroxide or, or cal or limestone water, right, using that, adding that to the, to the mix, um, boiling it, so that the so that the the maize then the grain then is able to be peeled and then it's easier to mash right easier to form into dough to, to take it and to make it in a masa but it also scientifically adds amino acids releases niacin 
Um, it's part of the B vitamin B complex, right? That's not in my maize as just grown off the stock. It enhance that process enhances protein and maize with frijol, right? With beans, it creates a complex, a complete protein. This is a really uh, amazing earth changing uh, scientific process that's developed by indigenous women. Um, because if you just have maize and when maize, when maize is taken um, after the colonization process to Africa, uh, to Europe, to Southern Italy, right? And, and where it becomes for, for poor people, for working people, the basis of life, like it does in Southern Italy and people eat it as pulenta. And if that's all they're eating, right? They have niacin deficiency. They get pellagra, right? The horrible disease that, that leads to skin blistering and skin peeling and, and death, ultimately. That never occurred in Central Mexico, never occurred in, in, in Mesoamerica, in Central America, because indigenous women had that knowledge and developed it over years so that, that, so that nutritiously it was, it was there. Right, that needs to be recognized. We don't recognize it when people are making tortillas or buying them at the store at this time, as you said, right, in this now period in which it's all kind of globalized and we don't think of what we eat. So, Absolutely. yeah, I, I just really think we need to underscore that. No, I think that's critical. And um, what, what, what would you say is the, um, is, so we can we can jump into the um how the, you know maize's impact throughout the world which you just touched on um you know also within the culinary world the modern culinary world it's you know we've seen a huge um uh kind of this very popular um embracing of of taco of the tortilla from from street you know from street food to you know, ultra fine dining restaurants. Um, what what do you think has led to that? What has led to the, that popularization of, of maize and corn? Yeah. No, and that's a great question, right? And, and it connects to your previous question of this expansion that happens um, after the colonization and conquest, but well into the 18th and 19th and 20th century of of kind of a development of a capitalist system that leads to right the the, the usage of um, corn and maize all over the place, the globalization of it uh, that begins to happen right early on, like you just said, uh, and and I think a lot of it as well, right, beginning with migration of of um, of Mexicans in Central Americas to the U.S. Uh, in the early, of course, there were already large numbers of people who were here as well, right? Um, before 1846 and the U.S. colonization um, of uh, or annexation of the Southwest, um, but even great migration from Mexico and Central America throughout the 20th century, right, brings those foods um, north. They bring the seeds, they bring the tortilla know-how, the technologies that were there, um, creating tortillerias and the like. and over time, some of that gets accepted by dominant classes in the U.S., but a lot of it really is still kind of um, seen as very, um, for want of a better term, right? Infer exactly. Inferior, something that wasn't really, is not what um, modern, quote-unquote, modern civilized people should be eating instead, right? Like the Spanish, the English would say as well, wheat-based diets are, are are superior, quote unquote, meat-based diets as well. And so there was a great sense of this. It was inferior and there was a kind of a war and there's a persistent, if you will, war against uh, maize, war against maize-based communities, indigenous communities. That still While continues. trying, right. And, and, and you've, um, in your work, um, have covered this a lot extensively, the Americanization um, okay. process of um, migrant communities in the U.S. through education, through home economic, through the household, uh, promoting, uh, uh, you know, a ham and cheese sandwich is healthier for, for children than, uh, you know, taco de uh, frijol or taco de papa. Um, okay. 
all of this, you know, with, with you know, at the same time, uh, rural communities being dispossessed from their lands and their their uh, their land base, you know, their their mice, their their agricultural land base. So there's this mm -hmm. very like intentional drive to shift the um, how how food is being produced and consumed and and assimilation. Um, That's right. That's right. Yeah, there's that there's that, you know, conscious de degradation of that knowledge and those ways of being while at the same time it's being appropriated uh, and then modified and this is and oftentimes disassociated from the indigenous communities from Mexican and Central American communities. So at the same time, right, that policies that would be about um, right, getting people to eat ham and cheese sandwiches or just cheese sandwiches because that's cheaper. And that's a, a, a more, uh, uh, that's considered, right, a healthier diet, as you say, even though, of course, we know, right, there's no truth to that at all. Um, even though that's being pushed, yeah, then there's the creation of Spanish restaurants, quote unquote, Spanish Mexican restaurants, right, for certain populations. The early 1900s or like and is, um, and the, Industrial yeah. Revolution? This is during the early 1900s. And arguably, it goes all the way up to the present, I think. You could see it, right? I mean, the great example, right, of this is, again, in, in you know, in, 2000, in 2010, um, in 2010, 2011, right, the United Nations made very two important declarations about food in Mexico. Um, and the first one was from UNESCO, right, where after a couple times of trying, the UNESCO declared Mexican uh, foodways, uh, indigenous foodways nourished by indigenous women over the course of the year as a as a uh, international heritage um recognition right that this was at the same time i think they they gave that designation to french food as well so that on the national international scene those indigenous cuisines are all of a sudden seen as right um something to be protected at the same the next year about six months later the United Nations Special Rapporteur um, for, for Food uh, Justice, right, um, around hunger, Olivia de Schutter, comes to Mexico and he says, the vast majority, right, of working class Mexicanos, of indigenous peoples, face great food poverty. And, and, and so that that food, is, that food that's, that UNESCO is saying is this great world heritage cuisine, is out of the reach of large percentages of, of ancestors of, of the communities that produced it, that created it. They no longer have access to it. And instead, right, have much more access to fast food, to junk food, if you will. Um, comida chatarra is oftentimes called in, in, in Mexico as kind of a junk food diet, that it's much easier, it's much cheaper to purchase uh, a, a, a Coke or a Pepsi, um, a packaged a packaged food item like um, gancitos or some other kind of like, um, yeah, packaged uh, processed food and eat that than it is to buy tortillas and beans. And so that there is a significant right, food poverty uh, among indigenous communities, one in, right, one in, one in three indigenous uh, children suffer from malnutrition, and you add to that as well, right, the growing epidemic of, of high sugar diets um, that, that then feeds, if you will, uh, diabetes and type 2 diabetes in which, right, indigenous communities are suffering that, that twin, uh, that, those twin mal aspects of malnourishment, um, lack of access to, to, to good and healthy food. And then, of course, type 2s, diabetes, and foodborne-related uh, diseases. Yeah, so that the contradiction is so glaring. Uh, it's just so glaring. Fascinating. Um, well, I, I think uh, we have a few questions coming in um, through, um, through Ruby. And so maybe we can take a few and, or a couple and continue sure. on with our discussion. Um, so I'll go ahead and, um, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to Susan's question. Um, 
are are you plant based? Um, I think either one of that, either one of us could respond to that. Um, and are we going to be able to afford food with this changing world and shipping costs? I can't yeah. pay five dollars for an avocado. This is, um, I think, this is a very real um, situation for many people right, right now, vast majority. Yeah. Um, that takes us into a little bit more about, um, you know, like our global food supply chain okay. now. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I, yeah. And I think Susan's question, right. Um, is, is right on the question really is then over the, over the past, again, this has been a large process in the making, right. From centuries, but over the past three decades in this period of more kind of hyper liberalization, we call it neoliberalization, right. Or we might see this globalization, that then all of a sudden, as you said earlier, Chris, right, people think, well, we need to be able to eat whatever we want to eat whenever we want it as soon as we can, um, which means then that that if it's not produced here on the land locally, um, but I need to get access to it, we have to bring it in. Um, and that might mean, yes, yeah, shipping it from Mexico, going to Chile, going to other places, other parts of the country and all that costs, right, not just the price. But the, but the larger costs, what economists would call the externalities, right? But in reality is, is the cost of, it's, it's the real cost of our food, is that it comes from other places and that requires all kinds of other, right, resources um, to do it. Ones that kind of then are very damaging. Shipping, right? The shipping costs, the people are paying higher shipping prices. Um, in part because, yeah, to be able to bring something should cost a lot um, because this kind of system that we've created, this globalized food system, is not sustainable. Uh, it's not sustainable. It's the solution. It was a solution to, to, to world hunger, right? This um, globalization yeah. and um, what is known as the Green Revolution to um, right. introduce genetically modified seeds that are resilient to... Um, pests and um, right. you know the environment, and mm -hmm. so um, there's deep implications of of this uh, campaign that was that is tied into what you're what you're describing, but it was right. supposed to solve uh, world hunger. Um, That's right. And and in, and instead, it's it's done the complete opposite, and has had devastating uh, mm -hmm. effects on local ecologies. Um, um, you know. Uh, the communities, but also, you know, bigger um, climate implications. Um, right. Yeah. I would say, right, all those tech, the usage of those technologies that argued going back to the Green Revolution of the 40s and 50s that were that there's a population crisis, quote unquote, and we're not going to have enough food. And therefore, we have to use technology to, um, yeah, genetically modified food in a variety of ways, create new varieties to then produce a massive amount that will feed the world. I think that was a, I don't think it was really about feeding the world. Right? I don't think that was the priority. The priority was, um, yes, producing quite a bit, um, but, but in the process, allowing these larger corporations to get access to those lands, right? To, to farmers' lands, to campesino lands, uh, and then to produce kind of this less large monocropping. We won't see the three sisters anymore. We'll just see maize being planted. And then because the three sisters aren't there, um, right, they're not fixing nitrogen, beans are not nitrogen fixing the soil and fertilizing it. So we have to then get, right, industrial fertilizer. Um, the other intercropping that would also address as well the kind of the bugs that would be eating it are then constructed as pests and they need to be exterminated. And that extermination then needs to come from chemical, um, right, chemical solutions. And so, in the, so all along, that bolsters, right, some of these, at one point, rather small businesses, agribusinesses in the U.S. and Europe, they now have come, right, through the Green Revolution, they have come out as, you know, multi-billion dollar corporations that have their hands in a lot of different aspects, as, as local knowledge is, as peasants, as farmers have been pushed out, and their knowledge is pushed out. And in many cases, reduced to workers, 
right? Low paid, low paid workers. Um, and still in dispossessed. That's exactly it. Dispossessed in Spanish, right? The word despojo hits it really strongly because it's dispossession, but it's kind of a violent dispossession where people of, of are their, yeah, of, of communal land and then forced to migrate and, like you said, become workers, workers exactly. to their own land. Um, but also, you know, that that no longer becomes uh, a viable way of living, and so um, they're That's sort right. of forced into. Uh, the consumer market as opposed to being producers um, right. with these milpas. Um, I, I want to make sure that we can um, touch on how communities are responding to to yeah. all of these drastic changes and, and how it's it's um, these technologies and these uh, knowledges of the milpa of um, growing mm -hmm. food for consumption as opposed to food for um, for export. Um, mm -hmm. through agroecology, um, right. if we could begin to um, touch on that a little bit, uh, well, mm -hmm. maybe we can start to focus on that while taking some more questions. Mm -hmm. um, the next question here is um, from Ken. He asks, Chris and Enrique, would love to hear your thoughts more about how indigenous food systems practices might support cultural resilience among migrant workers living, working in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, great question, right? And, and connecting Ken's with Susan's question, right? I think, and and as you say, to look at the way communities are responding, I think those knowledges, right? We know they're there and we know they are being, right? They're coming with migrants uh, and people are, 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 are bringing those systems with them. Um, however, right, the, the, the juggernaut of, of, of industrial agriculture is there and 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 again it it is helping to kind of eclipse a lot of it but you're right Ken I mean this question of uh, indigenous knowledges um, the the knowledges that that communities are coming with the great movement of agroecology in the US right so taking agricultural methods connecting them to the ecology of the land, connecting them as well to indigenous ways of knowing and, and being, right, are, are able to cre create sustainable um, communities and lands. And we see that movement, right, that has been kind of always in existence, but really, again, as part of this move towards free trade and NAFTA, the resistance of indigenous communities, of landed communities in connection with the agroecologists have really worked to kind of take land back where they're able to. And the great, I think you, you showed um, one of the, the pictures there, right, of the Zapatistas kind of taking land back and then beginning to say, okay, well, yes, let's, let's draw upon our knowledges. Let's use some of the sciences, right, that are out there that agroecologists have, have had. Let's wed them together uh, and then let's focus on sustaining ourselves with the basics uh, of right of beans of maize of of uh, of calabaza of chiles right of other foods and and not having to then import or de or depend on the state to you know provide some sort of subsidies um, to it but instead to be able to to go back to those knowledges and modernize them, right? And bring them up to speed with the different sciences that are there. And there are all kinds of communities, right? Th that are doing that. And the potential, Ken, I think is there, right? The potential is there. The question though, always still is what access to land do people have, right? Even within the US, what access is there to land? Um, and, and I think, right, we see a lot of good examples that have been happening in Latin America, which has been where we've seen people uh, and communities then say, well, you know, this is enough. We need to then gain access to that land and be able to draw upon that so we can in part feed ourselves, but also, um, right, think very hard about sourcing everything, sourcing things locally, um, thinking about eating seasonally, right, as opposed to um, having to ship things overseas and and the things along uh, those lines. So th there's a lot of that community knowledge that's there. Now, it is in communities. It is 
um, in a variety of ways um, there. And there, there, there are these discussions and actual projects going on. Um, and they fully, well, and I think they're sustaining, right? There's all kinds of very important agroecological work that's being done that talks about, right, how small farmers um, throughout the world are the ones that sustain the majority of people, that the majority of our food and the majority of people are fed by small farmers. Yes, a large percentage is still, right, is by large agribusiness, but small farmers, community farmers, family farmers, um, driven by women farmers, right, are, are in the lead on that. And again, that's not looked at, right? Larger business corporate um, notions of agriculture are, are, are not going to emphasize that. Instead, right, have to argue that they're the solution. Um, again, because that's kind of systemically built in there. But no, you're right. From the roots, from the grassroots, um, communities are uh, resisting and and are able to do it. And again, I think on the link, Chris, on the on the page, you have several uh, really important uh, videos um, centering campesinas. Maybe you want to mention a few of those that are there that kind of show those examples. Right. On uh, the Ruby event page for today's talk, there's a link that says um, to a PDF event document um, just to the side of our uh, Enrique and, and my uh, image and contact info. Um, there in that document, you'll find links to um, important projects um, currently underway in La across Latin America and some sort of um, touching on further readings. Um, and of course, Enrique, your publications, there's a link to your publications there as well. Um, and some further readings also. Um, so yes, we encourage our audience uh, to have take a look at that. Um, and so we have the there's uh, quite a few questions in the chat. And so I'd like to I'm in, in more of like in the methodical order, I'm going to go through um, and let's see pardon me okay so i think um one here's a question um shouldn't we be eating things that are growing regionally as opposed to shipping food products from all over the world which adds to the costs i live in colder climate and we have seemed to have lost the ability to utilize grown foods throughout the year uh this question is coming from ted Yeah, no, I, I right again. If it were, if we were speaking about a rational system, right, that was that was trying to sustain itself, that is so correct. Um, we just have to realize, right, those are not the larger priorities of society, uh, and so clearly individuals, right, can have those priorities. But we also have to remember that there's a larger systemic. Um, issues that, that are there. And again, those priorities, right, could become those of society at large, right? The, the, the speaking about these topics, the mobilizing around these topics, um, uh, in addition to, right, the various economic crises that we're beginning to see happen uh, around um, the difficult, well, the skyrocketing price of food um, because of oil, because of all these other factors, right, show the unsustainability of it. And this is the time, I think, to begin to uplift those other projects, those other ways that, that, are, that are occurring um, to show that, yeah, this is extremely viable altern alternative. Uh, and it is personally, and again, this goes back to Susan's thing about plant, right, being plant-based and, and, and consciously about people's diet. Uh, and I work hard to be plant-based, but of course, I, as someone who also, right, knows, <laughs> yeah, struggles with it in, in a variety of ways, um, it becomes very difficult, but one has to, right, think about that, but also think that this is also about larger structures. So it's not just about individual choice. Absolutely. Um, a question from Adante. How can we as consumers help heal these decades-long indigenous local supply chain shortages brought on by the superfoodification super of native crops? Uh, superfoodification. Yeah. 
that's a great point. Um, this kind of goes into, um, we, we talked uh, previously about how uh, mice and um, many other products have been um, like re-commodified mm-hmm. again um, and right. appropriated. Um, so yeah. yes, that's a fascinating, fascinating question. Right. And then it goes to quinoa, right? Which becomes the other, right? This, this superfood that then, yes, takes from Andean communities and cultures uh, and then all of a sudden massifies it, right? And then leads to kind of growing uh, mass production, a mass, um, mass production of it in ways that are, yeah, that, 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 that move it far afield from, right? Indigenous peoples. Yeah, that's such an excellent point. And again, I think a, a lot of this, right, is is to be done in conversation with indigenous communities, right, with native communities uh, in conjunction with communities. And again, I remember, Chris, right, uh, back in the day, you were doing really important work um, with communities in Baja California. And at the same time, right, you were working uh, um, um, in your degree, and you really wanted to bring fish, right, that was coming from the indigenous community in Baja California and begin to source it directly from them, right, in, into the to the restaurant. Um, right. The, maybe you that, might. Yeah, for the, it was for the undergraduate um, program mm-hmm. in hospitality. Um, yeah, it, it, was, it was sort of like, uh, for me, it was a no-brainer. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just there's there's no system in place that allowed that allowed for that. Um, okay. And you know it was to to do that to support you know uh, an indigenous community in, in Baja California, the Cucapa, mm-hmm. um, who for since time immemorial have lived um, in the Colorado Delta, where the Colorado River lets out into the um, the Sea of Cortez, mm-hmm. and um, with you know the development of big cities in in the southwest uh and urbanization the colorado river has been siphoned off to um you know generate you know electricity by way of the hoover dam and to also feed into the monocultural production of um cattle feed animal feed in the coachella valley and 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 so that's over time that these were this was also known as the California Water Wars, um, but that has um, had mm-hmm. devastating impacts on the communities south of the border, um, okay. um, just south of the um, All American Canal, which runs horizontally north on the U.S. side of the Mexican border, and um, as a result, the Colorado Delta has been drying up and making it very difficult for the Cucapa and other. Um, surrounding indigenous communities to to you know um, practice their ancestral uh, fishing uh, there it's of um, striped sea bass the corvina which mm-hmm. is now um, has been com- has become very popular in restaurants um, here um, in the US uh, striped mm-hmm. sea bass Pacific striped striped sea bass um, but um, uh, 10 years ago, um, when we were working to support these communities um, who cannot compete with the big fisheries that come from other parts of the world and, and over harvest the fish with big um, fishing um, nets. Uh, yeah, I wanted to bring in some of the fish to, um, you know, to serve during um, my week of, of running the restaurant, um, the student ran restaurant in my undergraduate program. And it, it, it was um yeah, it was not allowed, but, you know, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, um, we work with, you know, mm-hmm. health department and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, just the, the infrastructure that we work, you, you know, the fishing community needs to have their things in line, um, the protocols so that it's all mm-hmm. like a, you know, supervised and, and right. kind of, uh, the authorities have it all, you know, mm-hmm. checked. Um, but, you know, from like, a purchaser or a chef to the fisher, which is there, you know, if you have the right permits, um, but kind of like on an individual right. basis, it's very difficult um, or mm-hmm. even small businesses. So yes. Um, yeah. But that has sort of changed over time a little bit. I think it's exactly um, 
getting easier, not for the Kukapa, um, but I think for other communities um, are, you know, working to do that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially right. like in the, in the Northwest, the Northwest mm -hmm. fisheries with salmon and um, there's, you know, the strong base of, of support for local fisheries in the Northwest that, um, that I've, mm -hmm. that I've seen um, fish yeah. to like restaurant um, relationships. That's right, right. Um, yeah, I so, mean, sorry, just quickly, right? I was going to say, yeah, in many ways, going back to Dante's question, right? The the way in which, right, folks have been sourcing food for a while from CSAs, from community uh, sustainable agricultural centers, one could right, begin to make, make those connections to local communities uh, in ways that, again, are as well focused on more seasonal production, uh, and and again, I think those are ways to be thinking about, right? As consumers, as as chefs, as you all out there, um, right? To begin to ask that and and talk about that, right? That 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 propels it all forward, right? So it's not as difficult as it was when Chris was trying to do it, right? Ten years ago. Right, right. Um, and there's, I mean, there's many examples, um, and new technologies that mm -hmm. you know are are trying to also protect some of these um i mean I'm, I'm focusing right now still on the on the fisheries um because you know like um produce and and grains um you know other other sources of food have been impacted by okay. um by these global food systems of factory farming and um mm -hmm. farm farm raised fish um, so there's a lot of efforts um, taking uh, underway to to redirect those um, those technologies to communities and um, rehabilitate environments and ecologies um, that is um, run by the original caretakers of mm -hmm. these food sources which are uh, the original peoples the uh, indigenous and native peoples mm -hmm. all around the world right. who um, who have this technology and so it's right. we're seeing, um, part of agroecology as a response to this um, this mm -hmm. global food system that has impacted the environment um, in in negative ways is um, returning to uh, the ancestral knowledge, but also um, with the understanding and the and the very real um, uh, situation that some of these ancestral technologies don't work today because the climate and the environment has changed mm -hmm. so much. Mm -hmm. So. Um, we see it with um, corn and um, in, in Mesoamerica today that, you know, traditional farming practices that were, were you know, cosmological and also in line with um, how like the cycles, the natural cycles um, with, with the moon and planting seasons, which were just knowledge is passed down generation after mm -hmm. generation um, have shifted. Um, and so science right. is still required modern contemporary science um needed is needed to to make adjustments um mm -hmm. but coupling that with this ancestral knowledge and That's science right. to to um bring these uh you know food production back to localized methods um, mm -hmm. and localized consumption so you know we could say this is a way of, of cutting out the the middle the middle person's structures that um that is sort of what agroecology does, and and a very specific focus on cutting out the agrochemicals that kind contract. of lock uh, farmers into contracts that are just un, un not viable. Um, exactly, you know, it, it becomes inaccessible and almost like irrational to have farmers relying on purchasing agrochemicals that are destroying their land their health mm -hmm. because it poisons the water it poisons their their That's lungs right. um and and affects the children um and yeah. the the women in the in the communities so um agroecology is really um about um of, you know just doing away with all of that and mm -hmm. and requires also um a, a campaign to promote this technology um throughout mm -hmm. the communities as well mm -hmm. um, 
because people yeah. are used to using the chemicals. It's easier, um, but mm-hmm. the health implications kind of, you know, um, are, are what are really provoking right. the communities to to make a, a drastic shift um, right now. And and we're seeing that as communities reintegrate uh, agroecology, the um, they become more resilient to uh, climate disasters. Uh, That's and, right. And you know the devastating climate um, changes that are happening, hurricanes right. and, and whatnot. That's right. I mean, so so the agro the agroecological approach, right, is then kind of a bringing us back into a more holistic way of of seeing and and doing things, uh, and reconnecting communities, and again reconnecting folks to the land uh, in ways that can yes slow it and make it as you said right more resilient to to the economic uh, and the ecological disasters right that we're currently. Uh, scene. Yeah, that's a, that's that brings it back to holistic aspects, right? It then again sees us connected to the land, uh, and it's not about commodifying the food in the same way, right? Because as you said, with the agrochemicals, with the growth of these large companies, um, right, like Monsanto, like others, there's a, there's the commodification of life that happens, right, in the gene, so that yes, the the chemicals are going in, but pretty soon, right. Does the farmer using those seed own the offspring of those seeds? Right, it gets an offspring. It's and in many cases, right? There isn't, right? They're, they're terminator seeds. Right, they die exactly. afterwards. They, yes, and so, so again, right? That that that's all about that process of commodification. That at one point begins to commodify maize and other food stuff, um, right? Which is not the way they were intended to be initially, and then. It goes all the way up to the more recent period where we're commodifying, right, seed life, uh, and and the knowledge is that is that that are there, um, when then there are these other more collective, more sustainable, um, right, more holistic approaches like agroecology that have always been in resistance, and that are continuing and are expanding, and are right, around in different communities all throughout the U.S. and throughout the world. Again, in, you have to look for them in some cases, but it's it's much easier to find now than before. Absolutely. Um, we're, we're um, if we can maybe just um, wrap up with um, one last response from you to, um, mm-hmm. to how, to maybe just if you could share one or two examples, lo- like local examples in the U.S., um, there's countless. Um, but I think it's really important for us to to know that this agroecological work is also um, very necessary um, mm-hmm. for for us to be doing it here um, in in our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this emergence of uh, community gardens, the CSAs, as you mentioned, the community sustainable mm-hmm. agriculture. Um, but do you have um, maybe like one that has been like very inspirational to you, or that that is doing yeah. um, really you know critical uh, work um, here in the U.S. that you'd like to just share for our audience to um, so that you know we can end on mm-hmm. on a hopeful note. I think hope is uh, very important. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, no, I- to to like you know share um, and also um, you know some something for our audience to walk away with to maybe perhaps mm-hmm. look into their communities to get involved mm-hmm. with. Yeah, no, I think that's so important, right? And again, keeping in mind, yes, that this is proliferating um, these different, more food-based, sustainable movements, both in terms of, as you said, Chris, yeah, in the community gardens and, and in LA and in, in this area, right? They, they're proliferating. They're oftentimes emerging um, in, in many different places. I think of, right, various, um, various farms, um, various community-based farms in South LA, uh, that are happening, that are drawing from, right, kind of Black Panther notions of, of, of insurgent kind of feeding the community, uh, I, I think as well, of the way some of those are as well in the U.S. and in different communities are connected to the larger movement of, of farmers, of campesinos. And again, thinking of that local, but also with that global vision of groups like Via Campesina, and I believe on one of those links, right, is is something 
um, one of the videos of Via Campesina and their and and women in feminism in agriculture. Um, I, there is a document, so that, yeah, in the event, yeah, in the event consider. document, yes, and I think in the event document as well, right, is that beautiful um, uh, film, the New York from the New York Times film of Claudia Serrato, uh, right, making tamales and drawing upon the ancestral knowledge of her grandmother's recipe, but adding to it, drawing in um, as well, right? Um, in those tamales, um, blue corn, making a kind of drawing from blue corn, which she's also inspired by, right? Indigenous communities and for meat, instead of using, um, right? Other traditional meats is using buffalo, drawing from indigenous um, uh, uh practices within the U.S. and the Indian food movement, Native American food movement here again. And that's a beautiful uh, kind of example of, of what people are doing all over the place. Um, and, and again, it's those everyday acts, I think, that are really important uh, that helps to change those discourses and then connecting it to these more larger movements. I, again, I think as well, even though it's kind of slightly off, but I think it is closely connected around labor right, the growing kind of labor organizing that's happening. We're seeing it clearly in, in, in different uh, places, but with the pandemic, right, the growth of the realization, right, that people need to have sustainable lives, even when they're working in restaurants, when they're working in the food processes and packaging, and beginning to make those connections with who, who produces our food, who is serving our food, where is that coming, how can we connect to it? So when we think of supply chains, right, I, 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 the word always gets me, right, because it's so disembodied, it's so dehumanizing. Um, we're really thinking about supply chains. We're really thinking about people, communities, the land, right, the, the different mechanisms uh, of their labor that gets things to us, right? I think if we begin to see that holistically in ways that we're connected to who's producing the food, to who's washing it, to who's serving it, to who's transporting it, right? I think we begin to think of it differently. Wonderful, and, and I'm really glad that you touched on on that last piece um, of labor and um, and just rethinking the supply chain in that way to um, to humanize it um, and make those connections. So um, I think that's a great um, point to to bring our conversation full circle and um i want to thank you very much enrique for joining us today and uh for thank pull you. up a chair um thank you to ruby and all of the team to all of our the the back end tech support um making this all possible thank you all so much and thank you to our audience uh to our students and the broader community um for attending and um, we look forward to coming back again um, with future episodes, please um, follow uh, Ruby um, for future events, our live events page, and um, we look forward to the next one. Thank you so much, Enrique. If you'd like to say goodbye, uh, we'll, we'll end it here. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's great. It was great to be with you all.